This week we'll talk about developer advocacy engineering for open source projects, and we have a special guest today, Merve. Merve works as a developer advocacy engineer at Hugging Face, and it's actually not the first time Merve appears as our guest. Previously, she gave a talk about building a chatbot. I think it was one year ago. The talk is really good, so check it out. And welcome back. Hello. I'm really happy to talk to you every time you have like a really nice energy. I really love that. <laughs> it's like a, usually like a chat rather than just uh, podcasting, to be honest. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Okay. But since we're on a podcast, let's start with your background. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell us about your career journey so far? I studied industrial engineering and in industrial engineering, you have most of the operations research type of stuff. It's like a mix of mathematics, statistics, and coding, to be honest, to optimize workflows and everything. And over there, I have taken a data science class. I was previously doing forecasting already, but I have taken a data science class and I was like, I'm going to do this as a job. And then I started uh, going to boot camps, doing open source projects. You know, I sometimes did Kaggling. I took online courses. I kind of improved myself. And um, then I found as a, you know, like NLP engineer, I was doing chatbots and question answering uh, models. Like in both of my previous jobs, I was actually doing information retrieval and chatbots mainly. Like I was using Hugging Face back then and I was already contributing to Hugging Face as an open source contributor. So I was already a fan of the company and then... People like reached out to me saying, hey, would you like to work with us? And I was like super happy when that happened. So yeah. <laughs> and I did the master's and I also took part in, you know, the Google's and AWS's community giving workshops on predictive analytics, NLP and other things, you know, TensorFlow, SageMaker. So yeah, so far, this is what I did, I would say. Mm-hmm. How did you end up working on LLP stuff? So you were doing boot camps, I don't know, Kaggle, but then eventually you started working on chatbots. Was it accidental? So basically I was going to a um, boot camp sponsored by Microsoft. And over there I was actually mentoring because it was uh, theoretical and half practical. And I was like doing good in both. But I did a project about some text classification and then I stick to it, did even more NLP projects. My first ever NLP project was actually at school. I was learning the data science with R. Like it's quite surprising to be honest. Can you do NLP with R? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's quite unexpected, but there is even like a TensorFlow for R, you know, if you want to use that. Ah, and there is Keras, right? Keras for R, I think. Yeah. So basically, we have scraped the data sets from Twitter on climate change, you know, people's opinions and everything. And we did sentiment analysis. We sort of did like a topic modeling at the first place, uh, looked at the embeddings and other stuff. That's how I got into it, I would say. I was like, this is super cool that you can analyze a lot of people at one place. And that's how I started doing NLP. And one thing after another, like I started doing it for a living. And because I was always working on working in startups, I was doing everything. 
like I was taking the data or, you know, like getting it from APIs or scraping it, you know, I started from that to EDA and then building models and even deploying them, which is like very end-to-end because that's what you do if you're a machine learning engineer working in a startup because you do most of the things. I was also doing predictive analytics like churn or sales prediction. So yeah, like I was basically doing everything, but I did learn a lot of stuff. So I am not regretting that. And you said that uh, while working on NLP with chatbots, you contributed to open source. Yeah, yeah. You contributed to Hacking Face, I guess also to other libraries. How did it happen to you? Like what was your first contribution? Do you remember? Yeah, yeah. So basically, you know, like we have a chief scientist, Thomas Wolf, and he has a video called uh, Future of NLP, which like for two hours or something, he goes from the start of the NLP and through so many papers, he just analyzes the, you know, state of the NLP and like explains the papers themselves. I mean, this is so much work, like what are they doing? And then I learned Hugging Face. And at my job, I was, I started using Hugging Face as well, especially, you know, the birth model and everything. And then I saw one day that Thomas Wolf tweeted that they are going to have a contribution sprint about datasets library. And in datasets library, we actually have something called canonical datasets. I don't know if you've heard about it, but it's like Glue or ImageNet, you know, you have to make them easy to use and to do this you need to write scripts on these data sets so that it's easily loadable and fed to models in a very native manner rather than you know just taking a i don't know csv data set and just dealing with it like like it learn a low tires right and then you have this iris data set yeah yeah but these data sets are very complicated like for instance there's mm-hmm. something called the you know, like we have attention masks in the data set. We have, I don't know, like in, for instance, segmentation data sets are like very complicated. So they need to be made easy to use. Like for instance, named entity recognition or question answering data sets. They have like span indexes and other stuff. So we were writing scripts to do that. And I contributed to a couple of them. And that's how I met my colleagues as well. You know, like the other day I, I was talking to Quantan, who is like the lead of the datasets library. And I was like, I didn't even know, like I would be working with you because, you know, I was bugging him back then a lot because I had zero idea about CI/CD or they were using Circle CI, for instance. I have never used CI/CD because I was already working in a very small company. We did not have any development processes that you know like help you maintain the big code bases it wasn't that big so i learned uh, you know formatting everything from hugging face so it was really nice actually and then i attended their speech sprint where you fine tune uh, speech models with the language specific data sets it was also fun and yeah, they were asking me to join and then, yeah, I joined. <laughs> In Google I.O. last year, I was talking about transfer learning and I included um, Hugging Face in my slides. And, you know, I looked back and I said I was sort of like destined to work there or something. <laughs> so, yeah. 
But uh, was it your first open source contribution? I guess no, you probably contributed to other libraries before, did you? You know, like issues and other stuff, not much, not like a code contribution. Okay. Because uh, uh, libraries like, you know, Hugging Face or Scikit-learn have sprints mm -hmm. in which the maintainers are spending time to help you out in your contribution. Because like we observed that first, once you onboard a contributor for the first time, it's easier for them to contribute later on. It's actually a good thing to, you know, like have more open source contributors and help people out so that there is no scare uh, from contributing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I imagine that it can be quite scary, quite daunting when you see like all these issues, all this code base, and you mentioned things like say CD test, code formatting, then you just think, okay, this is too much for me. Like, I don't know how to start, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And now I'm doing PR reviews and stuff, and it's like actually, you know, like a weird journey, you know. Mm -hmm. You eventually become that person that is giving the review. <laughs> mm -hmm. Do you remember when you actually were making these contributions? You already worked at a startup, right? Like, were you doing this as a part of your job, or this is something like more like a side activity? No, it was more like a side activity. I uh -huh. don't think the companies would actually do that unless they are a very big fan of Hugging Face or something. But let's say you work on something and you use Hugging Face as a library, right? And then there is a feature, a missing feature, right? Then it makes sense to kind of contribute to the library. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, for instance, we have our TensorFlow developers and I see them that sometimes they contribute to Keras or TensorFlow in order to, you know, ease the process and just optimize some of the functions and workflows that aren't uh, really optimized over there. Okay, so you started, you contributed to this datasets functionality of Hugging Face before joining and then they saw you and they offered you a job, right? And well, what do you work on now? Is it something also you keep working on this datasets part? I have a couple of projects. So basically the reason why developer advocacy engineering is called engineering is because it depends on the company, how the job scopes and their technicality change. And in Hugging Face, it's a very technical job to actually become a developer advocate. So we do not have like a community builder type of people, but more like a horizontal engineer that is like supporting teams and everything and, you know, helping people out in general. So, and I wanted to become that person sort of. Earlier, I was being interviewed for machine learning engineering, but I was just onboarded for my previous job. So I couldn't do that. And then I was like approached for this. So I was approached twice and I was like super happy because like I wanted to actually have such position sort of, you know, technical, but also developing things for people to have an easier journey in machine learning. So basically, I have a couple of projects. One is there is something called Hugging Face Tasks. As a previous machine learning engineer, I have observed that I've seen so many software engineers who wanted to build machine learning products, but didn't know where to start. And these tasks are actually like given the baseline information for a given tasks like image segmentation or question answering. It's sort of like I have gained so many know-hows in my previous jobs that I wanted to channel them so that people would have easier 
you know, like a lower entrance level in starting doing machine learning products. Because basically in Hugging Face, uh, we have Hugging Face Hub where there are so many models that you can actually use directly without training a model yourself. So it's a bit developed in that manner. This was my first project. And um, I have maintained also the transformers, but the TensorFlow side, because there is so many people using PyTorch in here. They do not have much, you know, yeah. TensorFlow people. I thought that Hugging Face uses exclusively PyTorch, so they don't like <laughs> TensorFlow at all. This is not true, right? So this is not true, I would say, but yeah, there is like number of people who like PyTorch and FastAI are more than, you know, people who use TensorFlow and Scikit-learn, I would say. So they only had one TensorFlow maintainer, Matt. So like before we had more TensorFlow maintainers, I was helping Matt out, develop stuff and debug things. We now have more TensorFlow people. And currently, so I also integrated Keras into Hugging Face in which when you post a Keras model on the Hugging Face Hub, you can just push your model with one line of code. It generates a model card for you about, it has like insights regarding to your model, your model's architecture, hyperparameters, anything for reproducibility basically. So Hugging Face Hub is sort of all about versioning your models and data sets. Like a model register, right? Yeah, yeah, like a model register. And like most of my job is actually working on Hub. So I developed uh, stuff for Keras that would improve the reproducibility of the experiments, versioning the models. You can host your tester board inside the model repository. You can have model architecture, metrics, anything, history in the repository. So that's, yeah, yeah, it's good for collaboration with the teams because if you have your model on your local, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's hard to collaborate with people. So it's a bit like, GitHub or GitLab, but for machine learning, I would say. Yeah, that's why it's called Hub as well, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Hub. like GitHub, Hugging Face Hub. Yeah. And uh, we also have something called Spaces, which is like uh, you can just build your demos with Streamlit, Gradio, or just static and uh, just share with people. And recently we opened a feature called the Community Tab, which has uh, pull requests and discussions like you do on GitHub, but for model repositories or dataset or space repositories. Yeah, I just wonder, so you probably covered the engineering parts, right? So all you described, all these features, they are quite heavy on engineering. So you actually need to write code there. I don't know, write tests. Yeah, yeah. Make sure like the ACI CD is working and all these things. But what about the first part, the developer advocacy part? Do you also do something like that? Yeah, we also do that. So basically, the last thing I'm working on currently is putting the tabular data modality on the hub, which is like improving uh, reproducibility and collaboration for the tabular data-related workflows, having a better integration of scikit-learn and stuff. So basically... Everyone in Hugging Face is sort of like a developer advocate. You will see Hugging Face course, for instance. Every engineer is in the course build, you know, like producing content over there and shooting videos or like doing uh, community sprints, like community events. So everyone is a bit of a developer advocate. 
Mm, in that sense and like part of my job is to you know like i help people out in the forum you know reproduce their errors and fix them you know like if there's an issue to be opened i beta test everything to make sure you know it's good I usually try to understand the user journey in everything and i stress test everything or develop something that would ease the developer's pain so it's usually about developer experience i would say and also i do for instance a sprint it's called keras sprint where we serialize the examples on the keras's official websites and we build them also over them and we later contribute them to keras because like those examples are very minimal for a good reason because i have talked to francois cholet and like he doesn't want it to be like overwhelming there are like rules to contribute examples and stuff so we put uh, models and the demos over there later on to improve reproducibility over that because like it's it's not good to you know like you go to Keras's website and uh, you have to run a whole collab in order to see what the model actually does so we actually do this for people and host those examples we did the same for pytorch as well so we have community events like this where we onboard people to, you know, like contribute to open source as well. Mm-hmm. That's pretty and cool. I also do workshops on transformers or building spaces. It's more like a beginner level workshop. That's also, I would say, an advocacy part of my job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is it like, would you say it's divided 50-50, like 50 on the advocacy part and 50 on the engineering part? Or it's something else? So it depends. So basically, currently, we do not have much people modality. We only have Adrin, who is a, who is a, one of the core contributors of Scikit-Learn. And we hired one more person who is, I don't know, like they have a famous package again on Scikit-Learn. Because like it is lacking, I am currently coding stuff, I would say. But... It also depends on, you know, developer conferences and everything. Like, you know, if this season of the year, there's more developer conferences. So I go. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah. And like next month, I'm going to EPFL, Mm -hmm. for instance, to present. Uh, Today, I'm going to PyData Paris. I have a couple scheduled. um, So, yeah, like it depends. uh, But I would say I'm mostly, I am like, 60-70% 60-70% coding stuff and you know like 30% 40% presenting things or uh, I don't know like doing community sprints in order to get more contributors I'm spending time on the forum to you know like or like github issues to help people out as well which is a part of advocacy I would say yeah, and I guess the main difference between a Dev Advocate and a Dev Advocate Engineer is the engineering part, right? So maybe Dev yeah, Advocates, yeah. in the traditional sense of this role, they maybe spend less time on the actual features of the tool of the product, and they spend more time educating or helping community. But here you yeah, can, yeah. you're doing both, right? So basically, in some of the companies, like it depends heavily on the company, in some of the companies, these developer advocates, like some of them are focused mainly on doing community events or like mm-hmm. doing podcasts or educational material, I would say. But in some of the companies, 
in Hugging Face or I think in Google as well, we develop stuff inside and we test things. I develop lately more, but it just depends. But I would say the reason why we call it engineering was that previously it was actually called developer advocates, but we received applications from people with lesser technical background. So not to steal their time, we have uh, turned the title into engineering because we want to have like former ML engineers or Mm-hmm. Yeah, mostly former ML engineers that has been doing open source. And like the most important thing that we are looking for is already existing open source experience, because that's the fundamental thing we do. For instance, I do hiring sometimes for the team. And the first thing I do is looking at the GitHub profile of a person. What's the best way to get this open source, existing open source experience? You can join uh, the sprints of Scikit-Learn or Hugging Face. This is how you you got uh, this experience, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can pick a library and just go and pick one of the good first issues and assign it to yourself and open a PR and, you know, it's your first experience. And yeah, I would say good first issues are a good one. Sprints are good. And... If you want to do code contributions, because we first look at the code contributions to make sure that person is actually technical, but a couple of other things that you can do to actually contribute to open source is not code, but, you know, like documentation, helping people out in Stack Overflow or forums, um, writing blog posts or something like that, you know, or submitting bugs or issues. It's also a very valuable thing. And what else? You know, like even developing your own library that solves a problem is a thing. You know, I get these ideas of libraries all the time, but I do not really have any time. Mm-hmm. I really like building tools in general. Like I was previously a person <laughs> building models, but like after I started, you know, developing more open source, it's like a thing. I just want to build tools. I became sort of more like a software engineer, I would say, rather than a data scientist now. But yeah, it's mm-hmm. fun. Okay. Yeah, there are also things uh, like Google Summer of Code. This is similar to Sprints, right? Uh, but yeah, yeah. I guess it takes longer. And usually in Google Summer of Code, I tried to take part. I wasn't accepted, but I, in general, know a bit about the process. So you, you weren't accepted. Like, when did you even apply? It was long ago. And I think they just didn't have a lot of places for Google Summer of Code. Like the project I choose is the Apache Flink. And I think they only, they, it was before they became an Apache project. And I think they had just one or two open places there. Okay. Currently they have a lot. Yeah. Right now they have a lot, of course, but it was before they became an Apache project. And yeah, I just got unlucky. But uh, I remember the process is like, you need to write a, some sort of proposal, like what exactly you want to work on. And then if this proposal is selected, then uh, you get a mentor and you actually work with this mentor. and end up contributing like a relatively large feature i was moving meanwhile the applications were open so i couldn't really apply that time mm-hmm. and i regret that maybe next year mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah and right now it's open to everyone not just students which is even cooler right so back then i was a student 
So I thought, okay, this is my last opportunity. I was graduating that year. It was my last opportunity to contribute. But now, yeah, you don't have to be a student. That's pretty cool. And you get some money for that as well. It's not like insane amount of money. Maybe you can get, I don't know, a beer on that money, but not much, but still, especially if you're a student. I mean, I do it for the glory, you know, like I do mm-hmm. at this point. So, yeah. yeah it's, I, it's a good bonus, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And also, there is a thing called Hacktoberfest. I think maybe the first yeah. one was last year. You heard about this? Yeah, yeah, but I didn't really contribute on Hacktoberfest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it was uh, more global than uh, Google Summer of Code. It just, I think, a lot of like a big amount of uh, libraries took part there. So maybe this October, watch out if you want to make open source contribution. I'm planning to contribute more to Scikit-Learn because like I met their core developers there in here, like living in Paris and they are doing sprints. But aside from pick some good first issues, because like I looked at the code base and it was really nice and uh, to contribute. And you can also learn a lot from the PR reviews that you get by means of the clean code, um, sustainability of the code and everything. So it's a big journey, you know, like I really like working in open source. Mm-hmm. And by the way, coming back to you, uh, you said you take part in hiring in the hiring process. And when hiring, you look at the contributions of this person, at the code contributions. Yeah, yeah. Do you look at contributions to some projects or contributions to their own projects is also something interesting for you? So it can be a person's own project. It doesn't Mm -hmm. necessarily have to be another code base, but like if it solves a problem or something, yeah, like it's a good thing. But like the thing is in here, like we have standardized, how can I say, development processes. Like you develop something or like you contribute to something, you fix a bug and then you you go through this whole PR review and, you know, merger and everything. So we expect sort of like a familiarity with developing something for a bigger code base, I would say. Yeah, it's not easy. Like and sometimes the authors have their own vision that they want to see things that are done in some particular way yeah yeah i can definitely say that you know like in open source there is no ground truth like you will come across a lot of opinionated people about the code bases or i don't know like even so many nitpicking of your pr to a point of you know a lot of comments um but you learn a lot and at some point you get used to it and you understand the way they develop things especially if they start as a like a really small group of people like you might struggle at the first but i don't think there is like a standard way of developing things that everyone would agree on so it's quite normal mm-hmm. yeah i remember contributing to xgboost to the java library of xgboost <laughs> cool yeah well <laughs> way till the end so they actually didn't accept my pr yeah okay so yeah maybe not so cool at the end <laughs> and this is quite frustrating right so because they have their own way or expectations of the code, right? And if this code doesn't follow, I'm not talking about XGBoost maintainers in particular, but in general about open source libraries. So if the way maintainers imagine the feature is written, maybe they might just not accept the request, right? And this is frustrating. So 
it was actually my second contribution to XGBoost. My first was accepted and I was very enthusiastic, like, yay, now I do another one. And then my other one wasn't accepted. And I, okay, why am I doing this? No, I don't want to contribute to you anymore. So how to deal with this kind of rejections? Because they suck, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Maintainers have the best motivation because this is where their projects and in the end, they will have to maintain it, not me, because I will commit something and then disappear, right? And then they will have to deal yeah, yeah. with this code, right? But for me as a contributor, that was a bit demotivating. Maybe you have some suggestions. Yeah, of course. So basically, two days ago, I had to reject someone's PR. So basically, we save uh, TensorFlow models in a format called saved model, which basically has everything, like it has the graph, the variables, so the agreed way of serializing models in scikit-learn, sorry, TensorFlow and Keras. And with this, you can use the production tools on TensorFlow extended ecosystem as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of the models that are very, like in the early days of Keras, there are some serialization techniques in which, for instance, H5, you- right? Yeah, HDF5, yeah, exactly. Some of the models cannot be saved in this format because like of old ways of Keras, like for instance, you have like a gun model, like you do sequential and then inside the list, you put your generator and discriminator. For instance, you cannot save this with the saved model. So someone opened the PR to enable HDF5 saving. And like, I had to reject that because this is like a design decision we made to make these models easier for production. And, uh, it is like a witchcraft to actually save those models like that it's not really encouraged. So firstly, open a discussion in the repository or like organization to see the design decisions made and like why the developers couldn't fall, uh, fix that so far or any experience or insight they have. So, you know, actually there is a problem. and. Uh, Communicating with the core developers is actually helping. And I honestly do not have much advice to that. Also writing good unit tests to confirm that it works is a very big part of the work, to be honest. Like I test every single thing that I write to make sure it's working and it is compatible with the rest of the ecosystem because like your code is like those tests are there and any new contribution will not break other functionalities as well. So I would say the unit tests are very good way of convincing the other person to, you know, have your code there. And I think these are like two big advices. I don't know if I have like any other one. I think the point you made about the discussion is a pretty good one. And this is something that you should do even before contributing code, like, okay, this is my idea. I want to implement it this yeah, yeah, way. Exactly. What do you think about this? And then if you get a green light, then you spend time implementing and then writing tests. Because I guess it can be pretty demotivating if you are rejected after the fact, after you wrote the code. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's much less, well, not, not say not demotivating if this idea is rejected before you wrote the code, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like if that person actually discussed with us beforehand on, you know, why we do not save models this way, they wouldn't have to spend any time. Mm-hmm. We really like people contributing. So we try to reject people in the least discouraging way. 
So mm -hmm. that's a good sign that developers actually care about the time you spend. Yeah, I think many tools, they have their own Slack or Discord communities or also these discussions in GitHub, like a relatively new feature, or it can be even an, an issue in GitHub repo. Yeah, yeah, mostly in issues and discussions, yeah. Yeah. So talking to open source authors, they usually recommend like first uh, going to their Discord and then chat there a little bit before starting to implement a feature. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then at the beginning, remember, I told you that there are a lot of questions for you. I think now it's time to come back to these questions. Sure. Sorry for keeping you waiting, everyone. So yeah, the, the first question is, outside of Hugging Face, what's the best resource to learn about NLP, not just theory, but also applications? So most of the NLP is about solving tasks, which is shaped according to your data. And this can be question answering, like what you want to do, you need to determine that first and then pick the task that is suitable for your use case. And like, it can be question answering, name identity recognition or part of speech tagging or anything. So most of these are nowadays solved with fine tuning models actually, like through transfer learning, which is what these transformers are used for. So we, for instance, we have a course. It's a good one to get started with NLP, I would say. You can also check out the Keras examples. I really like the more PyTorch's examples and stuff if you want to learn about the practical side. For the theoretical side, I don't think there is much to learn. Like at the end of the day, it seriously is just a different form of data representation and uh, solving your problem according to that. So you just learn how to represent and process your data. And it's not even like the tabular side, to be honest. Like in NLP, what we do is we tokenize the text, which means like you have a big paragraph or like a sentence and uh, you put them into pieces and just match those pieces to some numbers so that your computer can understand that it's just like pixel values, how they are like uh, labeled between zero and 255. In NLP, we have like pieces of text and their numbers. So after that point, it's more about, you know, how you represent your data. And um, that's pretty much it. Like most of the problems are solved very in a very similar way. So I would say you can take the Hugging Face course and look at the, for instance, in our GitHub, we have many code examples I'm going to send in Transformers. I think the question was also about outside of Hugging Face. Maybe the person who asked already knows about the Hugging Face course. To be honest, Maybe. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's but Raza is for chatbots, like building chatbots, chatbots yeah. in general, yeah. Like if you want to solve problems, it usually goes from transfer learning. And uh, there are a couple of libraries you can use to do that. Like Spacey is one of them. I think Spacey also has a course that they can uh, use. But like, again, most of the time, like I come to a realization that it's mostly about the data representation. I've read so many books about this. Like, for instance, I read the NLTK book. Mm -hmm. That is like the most famous NLP book, I think, to this state. And it was, again, like mostly about the data representation and optimizing your neural network. And today we have um, like pre-trained models like BERT or GPT. 
and we just fine tune them on the downstream tasks like named entity recognition or sentiment analysis and you usually get better results than just training from scratch to be honest so that's why i think someone needs to learn about transfer learning in general or maybe like if you're starting deep learning from scratch just you know there is like so many nlp with tensorflow stuff i'm going to send that in coursera it's also another good course taught by lawrence and I, I think at the beginning you mentioned when answering this question you mentioned that you need to first ask yourself what do you need to do and pick the task suitable yeah yeah for what you want to do and do you have some ideas like what could be like good projects like let's say i want to learn nlp and it's pretty abstract yeah, right? yeah. as abstract as it can get so i just want to learn nlp so what could be a good first project like should it be a I don't know, named entity recognition or I think the good first project is definitely sentiment analysis because the easiest representation of data is going through sentiment analysis. Like you have sentences and labels and it's seriously like not much. In uh, named entity recognition, you have the sentences and inside there are like spans of text, also like their labels and same with question and string as well. Or for instance, let me think like for instance, summarization or paraphrasing, these are also hard tasks most of the time. Try to pick the important sentences from a big paragraph of text and representing that is also hard. So I would say sentiment analysis and anything that is like on sentence and the label is an easy way to get started with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, that's what I did as well. Like I have a couple of GitHub tutorials and so it's more like classification right yeah yeah it's it's about classification yeah, yeah i have a poetry classification notebook that is like a tutorial sort of i'm going to send that yeah they're also on kaggle um, and there is not much to analyze about text as well to be honest like it's not like uh you know very big tabular data sets because like in text, most of the time, your features are universal. It's not like very specific and the distributions are also not very specific to the data sets like the tabular ones. This was like the first tutorial I have written about the, how can I say, NLP. Yeah, thanks. The next question is, what is the best way for a newbie to get involved with an open source project? I think we mostly answered that. So we talked about yeah, yeah. screens. We also talked about non-code contributions. We talked about Hacktoberfest. We talked about Google Summer of Code and Google Good Summer First code, yeah. Issues. Yeah. Is there anything we forgot to mention or we can just move on to the next one? Yeah, we can move on. Okay. What are the most important topics in NLP right now? Yes, this is a very good question. So lately, Hugging Face is just got really away from NLP, I would say, but it does vision, multimodal stuff, reinforcement learning. Uh, so I am not super up to date with it because like lately, if you have noticed, you know, on the internet as well, like most of the trending models are multimodal or generative models like DALI, I don't know. 
I read two good papers this year. One was Flamingo. Flamingo. Flamingo by DeepMind. Yeah, it was a great paper. I'm going to send it. It's also, it's like a solved wing multiple tasks with one model. And T0 model by Hugging Face is also like a multitask model. It's like a very big chatbot you can speak to. I am sending you another link. So I would say it's focusing on most generalization without further fine-tuning your models. So we call it zero shots. So I just want to speak to this model and let it answer me. And this is like a very big trend. In Flamingo model, or there was also Google's Palm model. It's a very good model. Like I'm usually not impressed by the models anymore, but I was really impressed by this. It was doing arithmetic, you know, code compilation. It explains jokes and stuff. Explains jokes. Yeah, yeah. It's a very big model. It's like... It's like GPT-3, but smarter or... And they benchmarked the, against uh, the number of parameters as well. So when you go to the website, you will see this tree. Like, for instance, in 540 billion parameters, it pretty much does, it does everything. So I would say the latest trend is to just have like a very big model that can do anything, any task. Uh, but these are obviously not released open source most of the time. Like we do with Hugging Face. So currently we are training a model. I don't know if it ended, to be honest. We are training a very big model. I think it's released that has like a, a lot of parameters that I don't remember because that's what big science team does. So yeah. Yeah, that's quite a comprehensive answer. Yeah, thanks. As next question is, what is the difference between what you do as NLP ML engineer this is what would an NLP data scientist do. There is something called NLP data scientist. It's mostly, you know, like NLP ML engineer. I feel like, you know, I have this perception that data scientists are mostly people who are doing exploratory data analysis, visualization and analytics. Meanwhile, ML engineers are like training models, optimizing the inference time or deploying them. So it's the answer seriously depends on companies. Like if you're working in a very big company, then your job becomes much, much scoped. But if you are uh, working in a startup, then you pretty much do everything. You're like both of them, mm-hmm. I would say. So it really depends. And I have never seen like an NLP data scientist add a job application ad in general. So yeah. Yeah, I think at some point of this conversation, you mentioned that there is not so much exploratory data analysis happens in NLP. So it's yeah. more modeling, right? Yeah, yeah. And then they usually analyze the model, you know, the biases it has with specific mm-hmm. inputs about, you know, like genders, races and everything. So I would say it's mostly post-processing, mm-hmm. like after you train the model. You do stress tests on the model to see if it's biased or not. So I would say the analysis is mostly after training the model. Okay. What type of project would you recommend that new data scientists attempt when trying to catch the eye of employers for entry-level data science positions? Anything works, I would say. As long as you have a project. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like most of the people don't even do that. 
plus if you do it i think kaggling is like really helps like there is a lot of good stuff on kaggle and like i think the companies actually care about you know like if you have an open source thing or not and kaggle like everything is open over there another thing is at hugging face we have something called spaces i have told you about this but basically in spaces we host your model demos made by streamlit or gradio open to everyone so it's i used to use it sort of like a personal portfolio of my models because i don't think that you know the technical recruiters actually go to your github profile and run your models and try to make inference out of them uh, probably not yeah yeah <laughs> it's actually good to have like a ui of what your model does not just recruiters like as a hiring manager i wouldn't do this this is just too much time like yeah yeah I need to have the environment and this is already tricky like even if you have the requirements.txt file right it doesn't mean it's easy it's going to run no way <laughs> like i need to do git clone and i need to create a virtual environment then i need to install like everything and then i need to i don't know figure out how to run this thing Before, yeah yeah exactly exactly yeah. so it's actually a good even thing even if there is instructions right it will take like 10 minutes of my time which yeah, yeah. i might not have but as you said, if it's already hosted, if there is UI, that's really great. Also, like if I were applying to a new job and if they would expect me to build something, I would definitely build the Streamlit or Gradio UI and just send them that instead, where you can just run Python app.py and it just runs. But like having an open hosting of these models with, you know, it literally takes one minute to upload those files and hugging face builds it for you or like you can also use other cloud providers and stuff Streamlit has some cloud right yeah yeah it's just uh, i think very convenient and you know like the recruiters go hey this person actually does what i am looking for you know which is like already a proof of what you can do i would say yeah, I remember. So uh, to Elix, as a part of our recruiting process, we have a home assignment, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, most of people just do what we ask them to do. Like, here's the task. Please, I don't know, train a model and then answer a couple of questions, right? Very few people deploy this model. And in uh, three and a half years that I've been working at Elix and take part in the hiding process, only one person deployed this as a Streamlit application. And that person was hired because it was so nice to just, yeah, yeah, I, know. I don't know if there is correlation or causation. Probably he wasn't hired just because of that. But it was so nice that, okay, here is the, like when he sends the email, here is the zip archive, and here is a Streamlit app that you can play with this. And the first thing I did was I just clicked on this and then, so it was a computer vision task, so I would upload an image and then it makes the classification. And, Okay, well, let's hire him. Yeah, hire him. <laughs> it's good for two things, I think. Firstly, I mean, like as a machine learning engineer previously, I hated to build Flask applications for hours just to show it to the client for five minutes and not even take it to production. I could have just done a streamlit, good-looking streamlit or graduate application and just give them a link. And secondly, I am currently like, for instance, for my master's projects, I was hosting them openly on Hugging Face Spaces and people were incredibly impressed that I actually did that because TAs have hard time or like professors have really hard time 
trying to get your application up and running, you know. Yeah, I, I do know, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you're doing streams on Twitch, aren't you? So basically, I recently moved to Paris. And prior to that, in Turkey, my internet was extremely bad. And I even had the talk with Abhishek. And I had to cancel it for once. And I said, this is the last thing I'm going to do because it is actually quite disappointing. So I think I'm going to get back because now I'm, I'm in Paris and my internet is actually stable. I will probably get back to doing podcasts with awesome people because like I met really good people in here from, I don't know, like scikit-learn.ico. Like there's also people from big science in Hugging Face. So yeah. Did you bring your microphone with you? I'm going to go back to my hometown to bring it because it's too heavy. Like uh -huh. it costs a lot. So at the, initially I thought, you know, I will bring my essential stuff and come back and, you know, take it. But I can just, you know, do it anywhere. So <laughs> it should be fine. Okay. So yeah, my next question was uh, about your podcast, Inference Podcast. But I guess this is something you're not doing at the moment as well, right? Yeah, for a while I, I gave up because of my internet again. I had to cancel episodes because of how the internet was incompetent. But now that I'm here, I'm planning to have them physically actually. So for instance, I might just visit Berlin and we can have like a physical uh, ah, that's nice. podcast session together. <laughs> uh, that would be nice. Yeah. Okay, tell me when you go to Berlin. Okay, I think we should be wrapping up. Maybe is there anything you want to say before we finish? For the last month, I was very busy, but like, if you have any questions, you can reach out to me through the Data Talks Club Slack directly or um, my Twitter account. I usually respond. Okay. Uh, yeah, there is uh, actually one question. So why are you so bad at Mario Kart? I'm really bad because it's like a trip, you know, it's like a psychedelic trip to actually play it that fast so basically in hugging face office people love mario kart and we are planning a tournament really soon and they are like really good at this like you cannot believe so i am trying to just improve myself in the meanwhile so i guess that was a question from one of your colleagues uh, i don't know i posted about how i'm bad at mario kart so it can be that uh, or from my colleagues <laughs> yeah they bash me a lot <laughs> Okay, I think that's all we have time for today. Like I actually didn't ask half of the questions I prepared, but maybe next time, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for finding time to answer our questions. That is always a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, and you too. See ya. Yeah, goodbye everyone. Yeah.